This podcast is supported by VCLOF, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Today, we're getting a bit of a history lesson on our capital city, Canberra. We haven't had the pleasure of interviewing anyone from our capital, and today we're getting a two-for-one deal with Peter Johns and Natalia Venglash. Natalia has a Polish-English background and moved to Canberra eight years ago and has worked predominantly as in-house planner for the Canberra airport. Peter recently retired from the ACT Public Service after 30 years as a planner and more recently working in the public housing space and the redevelopment of public housing properties. Welcome to the show, Natalia and Peter. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having us. Now, um, starting with you, Natalia, can you give our listeners just a brief bio, please? So I've been a planner in Canberra for about eight years, um, mainly in private practice. I started out in Canberra, worked for a few smaller consultancies, decided the big smoke of Sydney, I should give that a go, and spent a year there, realised that I respect what governments do, but it's definitely not something for me, um, and came back and worked for Canberra Airport. I spent three years there and just um, as of three weeks ago started back in the consultancy game with WSP Um, but I've been also heavily involved in the Planning Institute of Australia being the National Young Planning Director um, for 2018 to 2020 and just trying to advocate for young people and um, foreigners in Australia getting their first job and kind of really figuring out how planning works in a foreign country. And, and Pete, can you give us our listeners a, a brief bio? So I've been in, living in Canberra on and off since about the mid-1960s. Um, came to planning a little bit later than, than perhaps most people. Um, I sort of studied my planning um, through the University of New England, started about in the 1990s. Um, and it was just, I don't know, it, it, something that really excited me. I went on a bike trip across America and I ended up at Washington looking down the mall and I just thought this is just a, a stunning symbolism and then I realised Canberra is just an example of symbolism as well um, and, and uh, you know just it went from there for me and just something a little bit away from planning for given that you're from Victoria I was an AFL umpire boundary umpire for three years Ah, wonderful, Pete. We'll talk about the uh, magnificent Cats grand final win uh, later in, no no doubt, Jess. But uh, sorry, Jess, you were going to ask something? I was. Um, So obviously you're both based in Canberra. Can you give our listeners who, and we do have a lot of international listeners as well, a bit of a brief overview of the city, its foundings, its position and role? All right. Perhaps, Natalia, do you want me to start on this? (laughs) Okay, so Canberra is the nation's capital. Um, It was established by the Constitution many, many, many years ago. Um, It said that there needed to be a seat of government and it had to be located within a territory that was acquired by the Commonwealth at a distance not less than 100 miles from Sydney. And then Charles Scrivener, he was a surveyor, he established the site for the territory. And in 1911, an international design competition was launched for the for the design of the new city. Walter Burley Griffin, Marion Marnie Griffin, they won the competition. And on the 12th of March, 1913, Canberra was dedicated as the nation's capital. And at that time, Canberra's population was about 2,000 people. Canberra took some time to get going. Um, there were two world wars, there was depression. And it wasn't until the 1950s that Canberra's growth really started to take off when Prime Minister Menzies decided that there really needed to be something done to establish Canberra as as the nation's capital. There was a provisional parliament house built early on, but nothing much really developed um, subsequently. So they established what was then called the National Capital Development Commission, which was a a planning and development agency that was dedicated specifically to establish um, Canberra and to build the buildings and the civic and social infrastructure that was necessary 
to support all the public servants that had to come to Canberra. So between the late 1950s and 1998, the population had increased to just under 300,000. And really the city had a, a really strong framework. Up until 1988, the Commonwealth had undertaken all of the planning in the Territory. And, you know, the Territory is an area which is something like 2,300 square kilometres within which sits the city of Canberra, which is, I think, is about oh, perhaps just under or just over 300 square kilometres. So with the... Because Canberra had developed as a city, the, the Commonwealth decided that, you know, and in 1989, the, the planning for the city got broken up into what was a national city component and then the, a territory component. And the, the new ACT government became responsible for the planning of what were, what you could might call the suburban and municipal components. And the Commonwealth still held um, control over the national element. So places such as Parliament House, the War Memorial, the airport and the National Gallery were all part of the Commonwealth's ambit. And whereas the city was responsible for the development of really the, the other parts, the, the suburban areas. And, and really, you know, where we've got to today is um, based around or what can, that planning split actually continues. And and can you tell talk to tell us as the land tenure system is a bit different from the rest of Australia and probably many other places where uh, in say Melbourne or Sydney or I'm sure in lots of other places people own their title and they own it outright. Yeah. Yes. In, in yeah. Canberra it's different. You lease your land. We do, yes. So uh, Canberra, has, yes. <laughs> Canberra has a leasehold system. So every block of land has a title. That's a crown lease. Um, that document is really your gold standard for what you can do on that block. While zoning exists and zoning then has a plethora of uses that are within that. If, for example, you have a block and your title says that, or crown lease says that you can do a swimming pool then you can only do a swimming pool on that block, irrespective that the zoning allows you know, 20 different uses. So it's definitely unique that a lot of people, when they try and develop or come to Canberra, they kind of stumble at that first block of, your zoning is more indicative of what you might be able to do. The leasehold system is unique and I quite actually enjoy the leasehold system because it throws up some unique challenges sometimes where leases, vary from year to year they've got some really some gems and some of them where uses that the zoning won't allow is a, is allowed because your crown lease says you can do it and mm. um, i know of a, a property that it's in a commercial center but it has the use of funeral home on the crown lease so someone's developing a funeral home and you know that then brings some issues in the modern world of well is that actually appropriate for the way where the you know city has grown to but because the lease says it you can do it Mm, that's really interesting. I actually didn't realize that. So I've learned something new here today. <laughs> uh, how hard is it to change the lease? Pretty simple. Um, yeah. it, it, it really depends on what you want to change it to and from and a whole load of um, other items, but it's still a development application process, very similar to if you were to build a building. The only thing is you're changing a piece of paper rather than doing something material. Um, and then that can lead on to building your item. Mm, very interesting. The um, other thing, can I just throw in, yeah. is that in the Territory, if you want to add an additional use, the Territory can um, make you pay for that. It's like, um, you know, there's been quite a bit of debate about land value capture. If you put a light rail past a building where in the Territory, what happens is that people add that value the territory says, all right, we, we recognise that increases the value of the property and we want to take some of that back from you. Yes. So that's uh, detailed as a lease variation charge. Yeah. Um, used to be a betterment charge. Fundamentally, if um, your block of land before the change is worth a dollar, 
and ask the change it's worth ten dollars you'll be asked to pay the nine dollars difference to the government and um, there are a few incentives and you only have to pay 75 percent or 50 yeah. percent or at the moment i think childcare center if you add that it's there's no charge for adding that into your lease but it's definitely a a fight i think between developers who want to increase the value of land um, and then the government saying well you've got to pay us for the privilege of doing that yeah okay very interesting we thank victorian planning reports our very first supporter if you want the a to z of planning decisions in victoria and excellent editorials please get yourself a subscription to the vprs details on our website This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Um, Peter, you worked in planning development and oversight in Canberra. Can you speak to the differences of, of approach in this totally planned environment as opposed to the chaotic legacy situations you find in most conventional towns and cities presumably there are probably quite a few pluses and quite a few minuses yeah the thing that strikes me and if i can just refer to the camera a little bit is that it was established around a vision that was created by you know the, the griffins and it's a vision that was influenced by the um, the planning ideas of the time, you know, the, the city beautiful and the garden city movements. But it also recognised that it was a, a nation's capital and had to address what were the, the political, the community and the cultural ideals of Australia at the time. So it was, it was a, you know, it was in a sense a democratic design of, that was supposed to provide for a a city, but also recognise that it had a a national role. But this vision then had to be translated into a plan. And though Walter Bella Griffin only saw part of that plan created, I think the key elements of that plan of a city set within a landscape setting have been accepted, adopted or adapted and upgraded by subsequent generations and governments. you know, the high value that was placed on the hills and the mountains that were to be free of development. In other words, a landscape skyline and a green belt of hills. And then those hills and those green belts were introduced into the suburbs. So there was a constant green space in the city so that people had access to, to recreation. And the final, you know, the final thing that I think was is makes Canberra different from others is that it the land has been under the control of one in, uh, one owner since Canberra was established in 1913. The Commonwealth still owns the land, and while the territory has taken over some of that planning and management of large parts of the city, any development requires approval by the territory or the Commonwealth. And I think when I look at other cities that were developed, you know, um, they were they started out with a small footprint, but there was no real real plan put in place, and though plans have been developed over time, that Canberra sort of like started out with a plan from very well, from the beginning, and the principles that underpin that plan are still consistently applied throughout the day to today and I still and I think that that has a plus and a minus about it it's it's the ultimate long-term strategic plan which (laughs) you know all all cities dream of but you know for a lot of our cities well well, just do you think all cities dream of that I mean there's um, no I think we I think they do but the the implementation of them is um, questionable (laughs) you know I mean you think about most things from 1913 and uh, what they envisage going forward um you know the world's changed a lot I I, I get the planning's got a lot longer term framework than say economics or labor relations or any number of things but um 
he, and this is presumably as close as we get to pure planning in this country. Mm. Um, and how do you judge the results? I mean, how do you assess what is good and bad? I mean, you mentioned that there's a degree of flexibility in, you know, it, it does get adjusted, but the spirit is maintained. Um, what lessons can be drawn, do you think, for from Canberra for other places? I think it's a very interesting question because yeah. fundamentally we do have a very prescriptive planning system mm. in the ACT because they have a plan that, you know, a gentleman and wife, they, they wrote it together in 1913. The world was a little bit different than now. Yeah. Um, it was very, you know, it didn't really envisage Canberra growing to the, the size that it has grown. The plans pretty much stopped. If you look at the plans in the inner city, they had inner, north and inner south, and that was pretty much the thought process. And now you've, you know, you've got these rules and criterias that you have to try and fit your development into. And it, it's a little bit difficult to say, oh, that's a great piece of development. What has happened in Canberra is that there's some really interesting buildings that architects have gone, come in and designed and kind of within the parameters of the plan. And you know, you've got these avenues if you're in the main city and they're, they're beautiful and you've got these height limits. And as Peter said, in terms of the hills, most cities that you go to that have these hills would have houses up them. We don't have that. We have that beautiful greenery all around the city centre. Does that mean it's beautiful and, and works really well? Maybe not. The inner city, if you go to the centre of the city during the day, it's not that busy and it's not yeah. that filled. But does that mean it's not a good city? You know, it really depends which parameters you want to use as your starting point. Uh, and I suppose the other thing that the backdrop is, it's a government town, mostly. I mean, the yeah. it's insulated from... Uh, most cities and towns um, are very affected by the economics of, you know, some towns rely on one industry. And if that industry uh, goes down or has struggles, then the whole city um, uh, shudders and shakes or yeah. if it booms. Whereas Canberra's been insulated from that sort of economic ups and downs. Do you think that has... I suppose there's pluses and minus, minuses about that as well. Well, I mean, the when the Howard government came in in the 1990s, um, there was a, a you know a huge impact on the public service, and that created a, a big impact on what was happening in Canberra. And I think the the governments, the, the local governments, have since then. Put, tried to encourage a diversification of industry in the territory to um, avoid that situation occurring again. So you've seen the University of New South Wales playing a part um, at Duntroon, but they have now um, seeking to establish a lot stronger presence in, in the city itself. So, you know, the, the role of education um, has really grown as a, an important industry within the ACT. And do you think this has also, um, I guess, stifled any innovation and experimentation in terms of planning and design and architecture within Canberra? I really do think so. Um, fundamentally, yes, because at the end of the day, something that meets all of the rules within um, the codes that you design to you can build it and those are very prescriptive they literally detail the color of um, a suburb specifically has a color palette it details the height the you know if it's a wedding cake design building it's, it's very strict then you have criteria which open up the door just just a little bit and kind of say if, if you've got a height limit, then the criteria may say, or in keeping with the local area. So potentially a historic building might have had an extra story or two. So you might be able to kind of open it that way. A recent um, ACAP case, which is our civil tribunal, um, or recent, probably a few years ago now, stated that the criteria must be read with the rule. So now you have even more kind of parameters around your criteria that were meant to open it up. So now you have a planning system that is based on either a rule or criteria that has to be read together. 
So if you have an idea that is completely different, it wasn't thought of when the plan was released in 2008, it's very difficult to get it in. It's getting better. We have a design review panel, a national capital design mm. review panel, and that's helping because they're kind of bringing in an architectural element and thinking, okay, the design is beautiful. It does work. We might have to you know, work around the rules, but it would be a better outcome long-term. But things like sustainability are not in the territory plan in the ACT. I, I, I suppose there's the question of, you know, as planners, we like things orderly and we, <laughs> and we, we think that we're the residual, you know, we, we have the knowledge, but there's a lot to be said about the cut and thrust yeah. of challenges and mm. entrepreneurs who go out on a limb and create new things that, mm. um, and I suppose there's that tension in other cities where it sounds like that um, sort of breeding ground or is not as available in Canberra. Fair, do you think, or not? I think that's fair. Mm. Um, you know, we hear about things in Melbourne like Nightingale, um, no parking, which there are parking minimums in the ACT. So just that idea on its own at the moment probably couldn't be done in the ACT. There are developments in the ACT that have had to do a territory plan variation um, to remove the requirement to have gas connections to new developments. That's only just come in. And, you know, they're not amazing ideas they're pretty standard now in the development industry mm. now peter you've got to stick up for the system you work in it <laughs> so come on you, you, the, the, over to you good come luck. on throw, throw some oh, good throw luck. some well, throw, throw a couple of long arms or something come on well I, I i think that if i think if you look at the the history of the act there has been you know an attempt to introduce different sorts of uh, developments like you know there are parts of Canberra you know um, in our suburbs that have um, Radburn developments in them um, and there's different sorts of approaches to how suburbs might be laid out that were tried at the time um, and whether or not they were successful um, but they were at least an, uh, a way of looking at things and trying to do things differently um, and I know that you know, trying to bring in um, planners and architects from all around the world in the past um, has created a very different, I think, a very different um, outcome than what might have been expected. Um, and I, when I look at some of the, um, you know, the, like the National Library and um, the National Gallery, and then you have a look at the National Museum, and they're, they're very different buildings, and they provide a contrast that I think is really exciting. Whenever I cross the lake and I, I look at the National Library, which is a very traditional design, and then I look at the National Museum, which has got all sorts of different colours and different shapes, and I just think, oh, I love that sort of um, difference. And you know, I, I take the point that Natalia makes and how the planning system needs to change to perhaps encourage more of that throughout the city um, so that people can really see great design um, taking place. Can the same be said for density? I haven't been to Canberra in many years, but I'm assuming it's still fairly low density. So yeah. Yes. In, a, in a, along a similar vein, I guess, in terms of housing mix and housing variety, um, presumably it's, you know, Canberra's accommodating more transitory sort of workers and families. Do the policy settings respond to that and also the need for density? It's starting to. Mm. I think you've got, um, if you, I would um, hope that you come to visit soon so you can see how much it's changed. Um but if you go down Northbourne, which is a kind of our main avenue into the city, that's got a huge increase in density. So fundamentally, mm. every building down there is now a six-storey, um, six, I think that's probably six, eight, yeah, there we are, yeah. um, apartment buildings. And that's the whole way down. So that's coming in. That's also on our light rail route. So the density is starting to crop up 
um, you've got density building in the town centres. Canberra is a city full of little centres throughout the whole uh, whole city. Um, so Gungarland, which is up in the far north, has got more of the high density compared to Tuggeranong, which is in the far south, which is a lot more just single residential dwellings, um, you know, three, four, five bedroom houses, that kind of thing. But they are scattered throughout. Um, the one thing that I would say, just to the previous point, um, kind of counteracting to what I did say, is that it does give certainty. So if you know that the plan says X, Y, Z, that's pretty much what you're going to get. And that has its ups and downs. Communities like that because they know that they're not suddenly going to get a, you know, eight-story building next to their um, townhouse. Now that means that if you know someone's trying to do something a bit different, there's a little bit of tension there. Um, but at least you know there's a bit more of a format, formal process rather than a free-for-all, do whatever you can think of, and we'll see if it works kind of approach in some other places. Well, Natalia, we're not all savages outside. <laughs> Canberra and this rip let it rip sort of concept you mentioned I'll have to call you out on that false narrative oh, um we are, com- <laughs> we are completely you know bound by rules as well oh. outside of the uh, Canberra bubble Hang but on. um so uh, Jess unlike you I, I've been to our capital city <laughs> fairly recently and one thing that struck me was the the number of sort of six to eight story yeah. buildings going up around yes. the city core and uh it, it seems like you know they're relatively fresh buildings mm-hmm. what are the lessons learned with that type of development well i did a lot of the planning for a lot of those buildings on yeah. northbourne avenue <laughs> they're, they're, jess they're absolutely stunning <laughs> oh. Natalia. <laughs> no only the ones you did of course but and where did you draw you know you know it, it, those type of apartment buildings mm. are not indigenous to Canberra. No. Where were the lessons drawn from? I think a lot of the um, the buildings, there's only probably a handful of architects that have designed them. So that really helps with the presentation on Northbourne Avenue because a lot of them have a very similar topology as you kind of go down the street. I think one of the big ones um, on Northbourne Avenue, there's a development called Space which was actually developed quite a few years ago, mm. but it's one of the best buildings mm. on Northbourne Avenue because of the solar access. So the architect that escapes me at the moment, I think it's Bruce Townsend, there we are. Um, he designed that with solar access being his number one thought. So almost every single apartment, which is a feat in itself, has at least the minimum amount of solar access. That's huge in comparison to what most developments now you know, you can get away with about 80% and then 20%, you know, they'll be in the shade, but they'll live kind of idea. And I think that thought process has actually permeated through the design of the other buildings of going, Mm. light is important, especially when you're building up because, you know, you don't want to be on the side of the building that never gets light. It's it's trying to be a bit more innovative, especially when you've got a very north-south orientation on that road. And I think, that, yeah, I, I think that having um, such a wide uh, area of land taken up by road and and now light rail, having tall buildings either side of it, you know, eight stories of it is about a medium sized building, actually starts to define that space yeah. and to actually give it some good urban amenity. So you look for good design to actually improve that and you look for good design to encourage people to make use of that space. And, and, one, oh, sorry. and I think that generally we do, but sometimes I think that that ground area could do with a little bit more work. I think that's fair. Um, one other thing about how the two planning authorities kind of interact. So on Northbourne Avenue and many of the Mm. major roads into Canberra, there's actually, it's the National Capital Authority that look after those areas. And within 200 metres of the centre line of the road, they've got at least some say in how the um, urban form presents. And one of the simplest ways to explain the difference between the 
ACT government planning system and then the National Capital Authority and the Commonwealth is aesthetics. That's the NCA is really into ensuring that when you have a entrance into Canberra, it's aesthetically pleasing. It really focuses on you're entering the nation's capital. You're not just yeah. entering a place. The other thing that perhaps I can just would like to throw in is the fact that there has been a lot of discussion in Canberra about light rail and what it will bring to the city. Uh, I think that it's from a um, urban perspective, I think it's been probably one of the uh, such a an interesting impact on the whole city. Uh, sorry, that part of the city in which it runs and how it has been really well and truly accepted by people. You know, people are, are using it and making, um, making it a, their means of transport to get into the city. So having um, tall buildings either side of it and people actually using it um, just, you know, brings that transit-oriented development um, principle to the fore. While we're on the topic of um, presentation, what about landscaping and what kind of significant role does that play? Because I, I believe the original historical master plan yeah. did have some reference to landscaping in it as well. How how specific was that, or was it more just about the you know the the green belt around the city? Did it go into detail as to what was expected and um, what the vision was for Canberra? inner city oh i think that you know the the term bush capital is is used often uh in discussions about what uh this city looks like uh, and i think that is drawn from the work that walter and um, marion and marnie griffin did uh in setting up the city and i think that when in the late 1950s, early 60s, when they, the, the then new planning agency sat down and thought about what the city was going to look like in the future, I think they probably thought about, well, how do other cities develop? How have they developed? And how have they grown out? And then they looked at what the Griffins had done and then probably came up to it with a decision that said, well, we need to respect that. And so that then led to what Natalia said was a number of centres being developed around Canberra with a large amount of green space existing between them. And, you know, whether or not you might agree with that decision, um, it certainly has had a significant impact on the city and how it responds to those planning challenges that exist elsewhere in other cities in Australia and I believe. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details. Jess, I'm going to probably not be able to go back to Canberra, but it was said, uh, it's been said that Canberra wrecked the development of Canberra wrecked a really good sheep station. Um, <laughs> oh. I'm sure you've heard that. Um, it was good sheep uh, sheep grazing country before they went there. Yes, but true. you know, w- with the landscaping, it's a bit like Singapore. Singapore's got magnificent, yeah. a, a green city, but it's enormously expensive to maintain that. Hmm. I mean, you know, it is uh, Canberra is an experiment for all of us to look at. Uh, should we hold it to higher standards than everywhere else because it is a you know pure purely planned city and i i would have thought that you know the housing options and the housing developments could be a lot braver there than in many mm. other places um mm. uh you know what, what's the what's the view on that is canberra the experiment that we want has it produced those experimental results that it its promise was um, in two minutes or less. Maybe Natalia first. Um, gosh. I think 
yes, it's an experimental city in terms of it was, you know, designed by an American who different country, different thought processes over a hundred years ago. So maybe we should, you know, use that. It's it was an experiment. It was a, a drawn up plan. Someone dreamed it and they created it. Mm. Um, but it's probably a, a good thing to note that Walter Belly Griffin designed it, but he also designed it with he knew it was going to change, but it mm, seems yeah. that we've forgotten that part of his design. Mm. He knew that, you know, in a hundred years, it's not, the world isn't going to look as um, Walter and Marion knew it, but some people in the Canberra kind of bubble, as we're affectionately known, um, have forgotten that element and are really wedded to the design of, you know, over a hundred years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's the difficulty. We should be, I really should you know, as a city that has, you know, the most educated and the richest people in Australia, supposedly, that this should be the kind of Silicon Valley thought process, the new, the new bubble in, in Australia, but it, it seems to be kind of stuck to its traditional past and can't quite get out of that yet. How do you change that? Good question. I mean, I mean planning is always known for inertia and, um, uh, it's Just easy, to, it's, it's yeah. easy to circle the wagons, but how do you how do you promote that experimentation? Just try it. I think the one thing that I find in Australia that we're not very good at doing is learning from international examples. Hmm. The amount of things that are new and innovative in Australia that have already been done in Europe, either triumphed or failed or whatever has happened. Well, I, I get the argument of like, oh, they're a different country. Yes, but you can always, you know, mold things into the area that they're going into. Australia isn't an alien landscape in comparison to the rest of the world. The people are, you know, the same everywhere you go. And I think just let development and change happen. And if it fails, it fails. But at least you tried it because otherwise you just get this cookie cutter development over and over again. And I don't know, that doesn't breed innovation in any sense at all. Pete, it sounds like your festival of ideas um, is needed up here as well. Oh, Something well, you're always going on about. Jess, yeah. I, I, I did suggest, uh, Peter and Natalia, that we have a festival of ideas. And uh, as Jess well knows, um, I'm, I've experienced quite a lot of failure. And uh, I, I love stories of redemption. But, uh, Peter, what do you think? How do, you know, do you need a festival of dangerous ideas up there? Oh, I think the idea of um, you know trying to solve complex problems, I think, is something we should all be trying to uh, to achieve. I think you know Natalia is right. I, I think that trying something um, and seeing how it goes, yeah, you know, I think is really important. Uh, and I I see uh, groups of people getting stuck in where they are and sometimes there, there needs to be a ground that needs to be achieved and I think sometimes these things happen without people knowing about it um, and how do we we get that accepted overall is is really is I think a very difficult um, problem to to address. But I think small parts, sometimes small steps, are really important and can be built on to show how that might be applied elsewhere across the city. Natalia, you previously worked as a planner um, for Canberra Airport. Um, airports are typically outside of the control of normal planning controls. Can you explain a little about why this is and how this actually works in practice? Yeah. Um, so Frederick released airports in Australia have their own system utterly. So they're not under the jurisdiction of the local planning authority. So for example, Canberra Airport, the land is owned by the Snow family and its kind of authority is the Department of Infrastructure and whatever else they've tacked onto their name. I think there's five different departments in one. Um, and how that works is that each airport creates a master plan. Now, some airports need to do that every five years. Canberra Airport gets to do it every eight years. 
um, just the size of the airport. In that master plan is fundamentally the plan for what development, both aviation and non-aviation, can occur within that land area. So Canberra Airport has been incredibly fortunate by having one owner that is a privately um, private entity. So Terry Snow and the Snow family own it and they run that as a, a commercial business where you've got the airport side, but also the aerotropolis side. So that whole idea that diversifying where you get your um, money from has really helped keep the kind of airport in its, its place in Canberra, I think. So obviously COVID has really affected the aviation industry. Um, Canberra Airport went to, I think, 1% of um, its users during the, the uh, COVID shutdown. But the development arm was still able to keep the business going and the people employed and things like that. So having the airport as well as the surrounding businesses kind of allowed that balance to be struck, I think. Um, and that's because of that master planning process. So the airport can write its own master plan and how Canberra Airport's master plan is written is the aviation side, the non-aviation side, and the non-aviation side really focus on the types of uses that they want on their area, which buildings will be developed and in which time frame they'll be developed. Um, there's no real height limits apart from operational height limits from the airport. So airports have something called an obstacle limitation surface or an OLS, and that's pretty much anything above that is controlled airspace, anything below that is not. And that's really what dictates the height availability and not an arbitrary, you should have two stories or anything like that in most other and jurisdictions. Um, and the actual DA process that we are kind of, you go to the authority to say, hey, this meets the planning um, system and then you go build it is different where the airport itself is that planning authority fundamentally, where they go, okay, we want to build this building. Does it match our master plan? Yes, it does then we go to building approval. You kind of almost miss that development assessment stage mm. with the airports. Uh, uh, that raises the question, Natalia and Peter jump in. Um, how do you get the master plan right? So it's not, um, uh, you know, uh, too, too aggressive in terms of development where other land owners outside that space have to have got a different regime. How do you sort of make sure it's a fair outcome? I don't know if fairness is really part yeah. of the decision-making. It's yeah. a different jurisdiction. It's, it's, this is the availability. Um, development and developers work on maximizing their yield and the ability to develop. So, and fundamentally, I don't think planning is about fairness when it comes to no. how the system has worked out in you know the modern world if you've got a block that you can develop to a certain amount you will um it's it's very rare um unless it's a government venture or something like that that land will be given a lower value than its highest yield value so yeah that's probably a very capitalist <laughs> view of development talking about um tourism and tourism in canberra for people going to canberra apart from galleries are there other big tourist pools that canberra has oh most definitely i mean there's one underway at the moment which is our floriard um, which is a, um, like a big it's the biggest in like, the southern hemisphere fly-in sort of garden yeah um, flying Flower garden show. that lands in yeah that lands in Commonwealth um, Park and is one of um, a, a really very popular um, both for the people in Canberra but more so for people coming in from outside of the ACT. Uh, I, I was going to say um, when I went to Canberra um, recently I was very interested in looking at innovative housing developments. So I went out to a cluster housing development and uh, I just forget where it was. It was about 20 minutes out of town. 
and everything was, is 20 minutes out of town yeah yeah and <laughs> it was it was like a seven it was like a, it was like a 70s cluster housing um very much um very few fences community mm. gardens community theater i think there was even a community pool and i was lucky enough to there was a a place open for inspection just so I rocked in there. I'm still getting messages from Canberra real estate agents uh, telling you <laughs> about properties. But if I'm you're a designer, not telling me that well, moving away, lots of things, yes. But <laughs> it, it, you know, for design professionals coming to Canberra, apart from the icon buildings that you mentioned, Peter, what sort of things should they, you know, what's the sort of hidden Canberra that design professionals might really enjoy? Oh, I think there's a. There's quite a few pieces in the residential areas that have been built by, uh, you know, prominent architects. Um, Seidler did some work um, in the suburb of Campbell. Um, there's been work that's been done by prominent Australian architects, uh, in addition to, to Harry Seidler, you know, John Andrews and, and others that are just scattered throughout the suburbs and the... Well, the Australian Institute of Architects has a so like if you get onto their website, they they have a list of prominent um, architectural works that are in the residential areas, and it's these little like little jewels that you might come across every now and then that um, just you know get the heart going a little bit when you perhaps get used to what might be just a, you know the standard housing that's been designed. I would add to that also that everyone should go into Yarralumla, which is where all the embassies are. Um, while mm. they're not, you know, they're not there because Canberra, um, you know, the planning authority deemed it so, but every single country has their own style. They've built them within the style of you know, their country. So you've got the kind of Japanese um, embassies, beautiful. Um, and the Finnish embassy yeah. that shares with the Estonian embassy is kind of just a beautiful kind of a glass rectangle, fundamentally. Just all mm. these little items. And you can just drive through the suburb and kind of stop and see um, all these buildings. I think they're, they're so unique. And what one of the items that makes Canberra just so different in comparison to any other city in Australia and fundamentally around the world. Um, one of the things that you, know, you can get around Canberra incredibly easily if you've got a car walking is a bit different um, but it's just there's as peter says there's these little gems that are kind of everywhere um, and people just have to explore it don't just come to canberra and go to you know the national library and stay in the center and go oh that it like take get a canberran you should all get a canberran buddy when you visit canberra so i'm going to show you the things that are just a little bit off the beaten track but mm. The things that make Canberra tick are those little things and the little gems that you find in the mm. little local shops, not necessarily in the centre where you've got a big shopping centre or, you know, just the big institutions. There's other bits that excite. Sounds like we've just created a business opportunity for the two of you, I think, uh, local Canberra <laughs> tours. Yeah. So you're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I hope that goes well. <laughs> and uh, Peter and I will definitely be taking you up on that, I think, at some point. Um, you well, sure? Well, Jess, well, yes, I, I really like Canberra. But, yeah. but, uh, and Peter and Natalia, things outside Canberra uh, in Australian cities, is there anything that particularly grabs your interest? you know, your, maybe you don't have any examples, but um, is there something outside of Canberra that you are curious about? Oh. Sorry, oh, question without notice. <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh. Um, I, well, while they're yeah, thinking I, of that, Jess, um, uh, Jess uh, something you didn't know, I've worked in, planning in every state uh, and territory except the ACT this year. And uh, I'm, I'm, after hearing this, I'm too scared to go to Canberra to work there now. I think they'll just, <laughs> they'll just, they'll just laugh at my proposals. But um, just a very quick observation. The best planning system at the moment in Australia is in South Australia, uh, in my view. The SA portal is unbelievable. 
Mm. Uh, it's very new, but in terms of working in all the different states and territories, well, mm. it's it's like a it's like a, uh, it's a common language that has been corrupt, not corrupted, but adjusted. That's all the planning systems in Australia, from my mm. experience, are are all derivatives. They're all similar. They use different terms and they've mm. got different structures, but there's a there's a there's a degree of commonality. But mm. I'm not going to go work in Canberra, Jess. I would make no money. Now, <laughs> back back to the question: Is there anything uh, outside of Canberra that is has got your curiosity going? Peter, you can go first. Oh, that's that's harsh. Um, <laughs> I, I was actually going to say um, that the th about I don't know maybe about five or six years ago, I I actually thought that it was about time that I started to see if there was more going on outside of Canberra than what I was experiencing. So I went and enrolled myself in a course at UNSW, which was a Masters of Urban Renewal and Housing, which no longer exists. But it was it was just a, a cracking course that brought people from different sorts of backgrounds and different sorts of experiences to discuss the issues that are taking place in our cities today. And it was a great experience and so in a roundabout way what I'm trying to say is that um, it, for me I could perhaps point to cities overseas or cities in in Australia that might have one or two different things that might excite my thoughts but it's about taking that time to step out and listen to what other people have to say um, and what their views might be about things and don't dismiss them. So, Pete, come and work in Canberra. Um, you know, I think it's a good thing to do because if you bring different ideas, I think that's really important to be able to articulate that and to put it out there so people can hear it. That's awesome. <laughs> Natalia, your, your thoughts? For me, I, I always look for kind of what Europe is doing, what America is yeah. doing and kind of I'm thinking about what, we could bring in to Australia and to Canberra. Um, and one of the things that is not new around the world, but um, we managed to get the first one in Canberra, which is a parklet. So just taking over a car parking space and putting a park into it, uh, which <coughs> has you know, been going on in uh, San Francisco for probably more than a decade now. Um, so a few years ago, the ACT Young Planners actually created a you know, Canberra's first ever parklet in Braddon. We took over a car parking space we built a little like um, seating area and we um, had a GoPro for 24 hours and kind of watched what happened during a cycle of that. Um, and that was taking something that, you know, we as the young planners got obsessed with, with these parklets that kind of happen around the world constantly um, and finally could actually bring it in. It was a two year process <laughs> to get that in Canberra. Mm. Um, and that's probably where a little bit of my skepticism comes in with these new ideas. And sometimes it's about, showing the bureaucrats how it can be done um, mm. but that was really a tangible kind of idea of looking outward seeing what's out there and bringing it to Canberra um, but the one thing that I'm I really love is graffiti and street art mm. and that I think we don't quite have a that kind of underground world in Canberra yet that I would love to see um, we have kind of beautiful festivals that get amazing artists who do huge scale projects, but we don't yet have this just grungy kind of feel yet. So the kind of Melbourne laneway style, oh, I would Natalia, love. <laughs> Natalia, careful what you wish for. <laughs> but most, most graffiti is just tagging. It's an affront. There's two property, different... property owners hate it. I hate it. Okay. I, I look at the damage that is done. Um, uh, you know, uh, putting it in designated laneways for graffiti to me is, you know, it's it's a bit, uh, what's the word, um, you know, very uh, unnatural. I'm mm. sorry. I'm, there, I just... there are two sides of the coin, though, I think. Oh. That. There's, mm. there's the tagging and then there's the artistic. Most graffiti. definitely. I think yeah. there's definitely a line to be said, but tagging isn't graffiti to me. That That's 
So you don't want tagging all over Canberra is what you're saying. Not tagging. It's more the the kind of smaller scale art pieces that come out from that. Um, It's that I've seen little things of um, like skeletons being drawn next to grates on the floor that look like ribs. So just picking those little gems, because really I have one thing that I've always said is if you make a place Instagrammable, people will go there. Now that sounds superficial, but if you make really beautiful, like little bits of, you know, fairy lights on trees, they just bring people to the area. Yeah, They make it safer. They make it more, you know, cute is probably not the right word, but it kind of has that aesthetic to it. If you have those little gems, I think camera's starting, but it's coming from a place of organization. So the City Renewal Authority, which is an agency that deals with kind of inner city of Canberra, they're starting, but it, it's very clinical. They've kind of got an idea and they have funding and they go, oh, we should do X, Y, Z. I want it to be a bit more guerrilla. I want it just to be able to turn up one day with fairy lights and just do it. I might do that. Yeah, yeah, I might do that one day. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's kind of what I'd love to see a bit more in Canberra. Yeah. Now, we're coming to the end of the podcast now, we wanted to ask you, how do you refresh and relax outside of planning? I go riding. Um, I travel between Newcastle and Canberra uh, a bit. So, you know, I've got my head in two different spaces, which I really enjoy. You know, two very, very different cities. Um, Reading. yeah, just in getting my hands in the garden too. I really like doing that. Uh, for me, it's definitely reading. I am a huge bookworm. I'm currently on, I think, about 45 books for the year. Um, mainly kind of fantasy and romance. I, I love a good love story. Um, <laughs> and also sewing. I, my mum's a dressmaker by trade and I just love sewing. So those are my two ways to get out of it we have both of those things in common natalia oh lovely hmm. I, I think you're you, you probably get through far more books than i do though <laughs> <laughs> now um podcast extra or culture corner um something that you've read seen watched listened to experienced lately that you think might be of interest to our listeners peter to you first I'm reading uh, Jane Harper's latest book, Exiles. You um, stole my recommendation. Uh, <laughs> oh, <going>. Sorry. <laughs> you should have told me, Jess. <laughs> um, which, I mean, I think The Dry is probably one of the better um, books that I've read for a while. And I've, I've read all the others that she's written. And I, I actually think Exile is, The Exiles is back up there with, the dry um what, and what, what type of what type of storyline is it peter oh uh, it's rural noir peter it's a um it's crime so it's yeah it's, it's rather good um, there's a consistent character the whole way through yeah. um a lot of her stories and yeah. this is the last book with that one character in it yeah. so sort of wrapping up a series to a certain extent yeah which is a shame because i've I also like um, a writer called Ian Rankin and he's got a character called John Rebus, which is, um, he's, he's developed over the, over the many books that he's written and I really enjoyed how that character has changed and flowed. So it's a bit of a shame because I, I like Aaron Falk as well, which is the main character that Jess was referring to. And Natalia? So I have two items one of them is actually another podcast recommendation um it's called 99 percent invisible and it's an american podcast it's one of my favorite um it's kind of got a development kind of focus but then they branch out on some very weird and wonderful topics um and i actually really really enjoy it i've really enjoyed learning about flags in i think it was barbados was one of them and just some really interesting things um and the second one we're all big fans of 99 percent invisible so you're in good company (laughs) wonderful (laughs) Um, i love the name of that the guy who who runs it roman mars Mars, yes (laughs) (laughs) and his voice is just lovely (laughs) um but my second one is a little bit dark um 
but I've just finished watching the Netflix show on um, Jeffrey Dahmer. Mm -hmm. um, true crime is uh, it's just something that has always interested me on how people mm -hmm. are quite broken in the world. Um, but it's more the focus on the show on how racism and homophobia really um, was the forefront of how he got away with a lot of what he did. Um, and it kind of just makes you kind of think about how those institutional things that just happen and they're just part of our daily life supposedly but they can really be broken and we have to kind of keep our eyes open to that so that's really what I took away from that show. I started watching that um, probably three or four nights ago and I don't think I got past the first half an hour as that. Oh it's hard. Yeah. It's yeah. definitely not for the faint heart. No um, it's very difficult but yes I, I completely agree with um your comments though in terms of the institutional um, mindsets and the mm. things that come out of it are all really interesting but yeah I couldn't get through it unfortunately <laughs> no, it's and that, that is totally fine um there's definitely parts that I just couldn't watch the screen so yeah but after the first few episodes it kind of more goes into the story of the people who were the victims and kind of the story of that and that was something that really was just heartbreaking but also kind of yeah as I've already said that kind of we have to challenge what we see around the world we can't just take it as face value and what and, about you Pete well no I'll go to you Jess because I've got two. Oh, I've already told you mine it's the same oh. as Peter's <laughs> well exiles well, uh, oh Jess I've got a <laughs> hit and a miss um I watched uh, on the edge of love uh this dvd uh, uh, uh I like this poet Dylan Thomas from the Welsh poet and uh, there was a film supposedly about, you know, his life, but the filmmakers got so many things wrong and important things wrong. And it, they, they just completely perverted facts and uh, changed a, a number of aspects of his character. And I was so disappointed because I thought if people don't know, you know, much about his life, they will think that is what he's like. And, I had a similar experience when I watched um, a movie earlier this year, Redemption, about one of my heroes, Siggy Sassoon, also a poet. And it was a I was so looking forward to the movie and they just put all this stuff in there that was sort of current, uh, current trend thinking that had nothing to do with the story, which spoiled it. And I'm, I'm going to see Emily soon, which is about Emily Bronte. And I just hope they don't wreck that one as well. But that's that's my that's my miss, I should say. My hit is Aussie Mega Mechanics, which is uh, on lots of uh, TV outlets and uh, Foxtel and uh, I think Channel Ten. But it's about people around Australia who have to riggers, engineers, welders. Um, it's not completely blokey, I'll say that, but they have to fix hardcore machinery in very quick time um massive trains trucks uh coal loading facilities uh all you know the snowy mountain um you know the gears in there it's a terrific show about how people can work together and how people are very smart at fixing stuff and mm. how we rely on very big infrastructure to keep our societies running so mm. aussie mega mechanics um, I'm sure you can get it in most places. So that's my recommendation, Jess. And I hope you, I hope, I hope you both uh, look it up, Natalia and Peter. I'm definitely not going to watch that TV show. Um, <laughs> to me, to me, that sort of thing just reeks of, you know, terrible problems in our culture. I'm okay. definitely not going to. I'm definitely not going to watch your mechanic show either. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's why we love diversity on this show. Exactly. exactly. I would actually like to watch that show. I love any. I, I even watched one of those, um, you know, train shows that goes for like twenty four hours. It's just you watching a train journey. So for me, that kind of stuff just sounds awesome. <laughs> well, well, there's a whole series well, on train that. on train journeys in Australia. Not that, not just the one you've seen, Natalia, and they are fantastic too. Amazing. Uh, so th thank you very much for. Uh, coming along Natalia and Peter and, so and giving us an insight into the world of Canberra. I uh, hope we haven't been too tough on Canberra. Uh, I think we held Canberra. our own. Yeah, oh, you, you, you <laughs> did. You did. And there's, 
and I think there's team Natalia and team Pete uh, on this one. So um, we'll see what our viewers, our listeners have to say. So thanks again for coming and joining Planning Exchange. And thanks, Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. It's been really lovely. Thank you both. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more of our podcasts, hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn or website for behind the scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast.